second episode we're still talking about a wizard of earth sea james gifford and simon mcneil here we're going to be focusing on the language of the book hope you enjoy sometimes find myself falling asleep and just saying lorbinary over and over again lorbinary 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 it's a hypnotic poetic aspect of this book the language that she uses and i don't think anybody could deny that the language that she settles on in all of her work whether it's sf or fantasy is integral to the story that she's telling and I, want to, and I want to use this as a way to sort of open up the, the naming aspect of this book, too, so we can talk about the name and the naming and all that stuff. Do you have any, dare I say, takes on the language that's, that's, that's going on here in this book? Either of you? Indeed, but does Simon want to go first? Okay, sure. Um, I... Uh... I mean, of course, uh, with a book that's as concerned with names as this is, the names of places are going to matter a lot. Um, and I, I sometimes feel that there's an almost kind of a Dickensian sense that that the sound of the name is supposed to give you a kind of a feel for the place immediately upon listening to it. Like when when you hear that he's from Gaunt, mm-hmm. and it's got that 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 very brief kind of guttural, like sort of Germanic. Yeah, very Germanic yeah. sort of a sound. And it's not a Germanic people there, Mm-mm. but it's still, it, it still gives you a bit of that mise-en-scene immediately. You get this mm-hmm. sense that, that, that this is a place where there's simple people who have you know, simple lives, don't have much time for wasted words or wasted vowels. Right. <laughs> um, and and I, I think that, that that attempt to make sure that a name is evocative of the thing is is some of what's going on with how she's naming islands that that she's able to pack she's able to pack a lot of meaning into a small package that way that that immediately by giving us a few brief descriptions of like settled places within a within a, an island within a community and then also giving us um the, the names she can start to give us a sense of what it's like to be there as opposed to being somewhere else within the archipelago with how many little islands there are that 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 get is, is on and how different they all are from each other. I think that, that that becomes important, especially while maintaining that parsimony that we were talking about, where 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 she doesn't want to waste words doing info dumpy world building. Yeah, there's no info dumps in her in Le Guin. No, she doesn't she doesn't need them because as I'd said before, she's a master of synecdoche. Right? She uses a part for the whole and 
she is very keen on how she describes a place that for the first time reader would never have any idea. And so you have to turn to the map to see what's going on. And sometimes that can be disorienting, right? Oh, uh, you know, the little island of, uh, you know, something, you know, Wishmash. I'm making that up. That's not a real name. I could just look at the map, but, you know, she says, oh, and it had its, uh, you know, high cliffs and its pine trees and its spray that was kind of, there's a sense that she doesn't give you, she gives you three or four things and then she leaves it alone and then it has its own world. And I'm, and I feel like that is something that is either lost or is not really used a whole lot in, I'll just say fantasy per se, maybe there's a turn toward, or maybe there's people who are doing it. I don't read every single thing that comes out, obviously, but uh, on the whole, you know, fantasy novels are very maximalist nowadays. And I think part of that is perhaps, uh, to borrow Simon's word, not a lot of parsimony going on with the way that the language is executed. I don't know. I'm not trying to condemn contemporary fantasy novels. Don't misunderstand me. The, the idea here is that uh, there is an attention to language here that you don't get in a lot of other books, which I think is what excels or what puts this above uh, a lot of other fantasy. And I think it's also what allows the book to be slimmer is because of the attention that she gives to what words she assigns to her world, to her characters, and even to objects. You know, I mean, like somehow uh, I will admit um, my favorite character in this book to some degree is the Otak. The little yes. squirrely Aww. type of creature that um, adopts Ged, really, and which uh, goes through almost the whole book um, and does die. Again, you know, there's no turning away from that. The, uh, the uh, little creature dies in the end. It is as much a book about mortality as the third in the series. Yeah, which, man, so far that's my least favorite, but I'm going to have to reread it and have somebody work through that with me i don't know why i think it's I because it, but it's hard i don't i think it's because just to get off topic for one second lebanon is not the most um evocative character for me i think for some it's reason prince he can't i know be. but that's it i think that's what it is There's something about the royalty aspect of it that's mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know she doesn't have much truck with royalty uh unsurprisingly mm-hmm. yeah yeah no i'm and I, I, neither does Ged, I think. That's what kind of why he's like. I think you're about to go into something else, but I wonder if there's an element yeah. of Simon's that I can just draw out before we no, do. No, please go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, it, it's so easy to forget about Le Guin's background. Uh, you know, the book is dedicated to three university professors, one at um, Columbia, one at Stanford, and I'm forgetting where, where the third brother was. Clifton, uh, Ted, Carl. Yeah. And uh, within this, we also have this, this attention to Gaunt and then Celador as the difference uh, that you you drew up, and you know it's easy to forget she's doing her PhD uh, in is it medieval French literature. Um, so this this problem in English where we have a tension between the Romance and Germanic elements uh, of, of the English language or Scandinavian. Min uh, so I'm always listening to this kind of thing as well. Um, 
she knows how to weight that into the, the words and say this would be you know a very old English word or this would be a Scandinavian form of a word. This would be the romance version that we have in English. And generally when we use it, it's, it marks class. Uh, you know, the, the medical professionals, which is, you know, another non-English word, would talk about somnambulism, whereas regular people talk about sleepwalking. Um, and we code class so much into English with that. And when we, we look at the names of the islands, they're divided in similar ways. Uh, you know, how many of these are monosyllabic, uh, good old English words, and which ones aren't? Yeah, I think of when I when I teach aspects of the history of the English language in my classes, I often will point to, you know, the Norman invasion in 1066 and how obviously language changes there. And one of the things we always mention is, you know, in, in French, you would have, uh, you know, manse instead of home, right? But the word we have for mansion comes from the French word for home. And so, but what do you, what would you rather, rather live in or who lives where, right? my poor ass lives in a home, rich people live in a mansion, right? So there is, the, the class differences are sort of baked into the language to some degree there, you know. Uh, Raises cows and who eats beef. beef. Exactly, <laughs> pig and pork and exactly all that stuff. So yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I'm trying to find a word, an instance where she says, uh, talking about the old speech, not the hardic tongue of Earthsea. And I think this is the, the namer, master namer who's saying this. He said, that is the language dragons speak and the language Sigoy spoke who made the islands of the world and the language of our lays and songs, spells, enchantments, and invocations. Its words lie hidden and changed among our hardic words. We call the foam on waves Sukian. That word is made from two words of the old speech, Suk, feather, and Inian, the sea. Feather of the sea is foam. But you cannot charm the foam calling it Sukian. You must use its own true name in the old speech, which is Essa. And it goes on to describe that. I love it. There's like a little linguistic lesson here inside this chapter. But that's the kind of stuff, this sort of attention to names and naming and what does it mean for someone to have your true name? So in the book, obviously, you have a name. You can have a name you're born with. If you become a mage, you're renamed by your, the one, your mentor who, who takes you in. And then you're given your true name, which you are not meant to give to anybody unless they are incredibly trustworthy. Um, how do you see this aspect of the book? What does this name, true name, do for you? And Ged goes through three levels, Dooney, Sparrowhawk, and Ged. Um, how does this this is the one thing that about this book that i love the most is the name part it's where she started too in the story uh is it 1962 or 64 that precedes uh these it starts with the power of naming mm -hmm. uh and i mentioned earlier i, I came back to Le Guin via she unnames them mm -hmm. uh you, you can take it as biblical but uh there's power and authority in naming but there's also responsibility which is her her definition of anarchism and very close to her sense of Taoism. Um, there has to be a reciprocity in calling a creature's name uh, out of need, like the goats, and it's not to be done lightly as he learns, uh, which is the first, first joke in the book. Mm -hmm. um, yet, in a sense, she's taking a convention uh, that I believe is taken from the Golden Bough, 
uh, of naming and control. And then she's subverting that, con that, that convention by saying, no, this carries responsibility. Uh, and, and you can't be fluent in this tongue, but the dragons can. Uh, and it's the language of creation. Don't use it for destruction. Um, it's, it's as if to say you can have magic, but when you get magic, it's going to come with, with great responsibility. Uh, you can have freedom, but it won't be easy. Um, you know, it comes with its own burden rather than its release. And, and that's to me is very Le Guin-ish. Uh, so it kind of makes sense why she would attach to it so much in this story, but it, it is a different magic system than we get in other fantasy novels. What, what I found really interesting about the old tongue as, as, as a language um, and as something which is used as a source of magic is this idea that you cannot speak falsehood in it. What you say has to be true. Um, so that's why, like, that's why I, I, you get this tension that arises, though, and this is why transformation is so dangerous, because you are saying truthfully, you are this thing that you are not. So you become it. And in becoming, you make it true so that that the, the name then becomes a fluid thing that 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 transforms as you do. Um, and, and I think that 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 kind of flow of identity um, is is really essential to kind of understanding how language shapes meaning for 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 people in Earthsea for for Le Guin as as a, a writer in this book, um, and and how how it's used to encapsulate something that is otherwise difficult to communicate because it's always on the move. There's something beautiful in that um, that I think she cycles back to later to make more overt, which is that you, you captured in the word the flow of being. Um, when we name things, we feel like we're fixing them in place. You know, you're, you're setting it down with a pin. And that doesn't seem to be quite what she's after in this. Uh, and you could almost say it's, you know, in a post-structuralist or post-structural anarchism, a post-anarchism, uh, where the idea of self-domination is one of the things that must also be conquered. You know, the idea that you fix yourself into an identity and you stay there and you're set and you're stable uh, rather than protean. That is itself already an authoritarian gesture. Uh, and that containment by the name becomes something that is both fascinating here and yet uncomfortable because we have a true name for Ged and yet the entire process of the novel is Ged discovering that he is more than he thinks he is and he needs to become more than he is at the moment. He needs to change. He needs to alter. Um, so he carries that name and he can be summoned by it as can the dragon because it's true. It cannot be a lie. Yet at the same time, that name is insufficient. Uh, dare I say, uh, returning to Heidegger, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it marks an, an insufficiency. Um, yeah. the true language, the true speech. I, I've a, got a quote here from the book. Um, this is something that Ogayan says um, to Ged. At the spring of the river Ar, I named you, a stream that falls from the mountain to the sea. A man would know the end he goes to, but he cannot know it, it if he does not turn and return to his beginning and hold that beginning in his being. If he would not be a stick whirled and whelmed in the stream, he must be the stream itself. All of it, from its spring to its sinking in the sea. I, like it's it's really clear that that like she's really leaning into that flow metaphor for being right there by making it literally a river that you're traversing. 
I use exactly that passage when I talk about James Joyce's stream of consciousness in relation to fantasy fiction, because there's like mm -hmm. a whole stream of fantasy where it's interiority that defines magic. It's its will. And it's not the stream of consciousness that, that controls consciousness. It's not the banks marking in the water. You're interested in the flow. Because right? you can't you can't fix it. Uh, and water will erode those boundaries too. There is a, a, a and I don't want to rely on a binary, but the seeming and being aspect of the language that Simon was talking about, like you can't, when he turns into a, a hawk, he is saying, I am a hawk. He has to believe what he's doing in order to, to do that, but he'll get lost in it, which he's been warned about constantly. And it reminds me very much of a scene or a number of scenes from Henry IV, part one, where Hal, who is a prince, who is going to become a king, um, is not acting like a king. He's, he's sort of read the riot act about this. Like, you're not acting like a king. You're running around with Falstaff. You're drinking. You're pouring. You're doing all these things. You know, shape up. And I often talk about the difference between seeming and being in classes. And, with, and I think about this in this book is the seeming part and the being part. Because there's a point where someone asks, I think it might be Vetch's sister, why don't you, um, can you, can you eat? No, I mean, it might not be Vetch's sister. I think it might be um, the princess from Oskol or something. Like if you are, can you just create food and eat it? And he's like, well, no. I mean, it looks like food, tastes like food feels like food but it doesn't satiate hunger right and so there's a there's a weird aspect that that's the seeming part there's no being there and i love how deflationary the magic is in this book because it's very from the very beginning it's like yeah it looks like that but it's not actually that like immediately you know a book where you have magic you're like oh wow I'll just ask the genie for more wishes and then I'll have everything I need, right? I can just keep creating stuff. I'll create gold, I'll create a house, I can do whatever. And uh, no, it has to actually, it's just seeming. And I think the, the scene that puts this uh, into action is towards the end where he is uh, sailing, Ged is, in <laughs> what I can only picture as being the most rickety boat. I say, I'll say boat in quotation marks because it's pretty much that he has his staff for a mast. It's got random pieces of driftwood held together by charms and spells, and he's using a mage wind. So he doesn't even have really the, the right wind. Everything is put together, and he can't really sleep because he constantly has to reweave and rebind these spells to keep this boat together. If he doesn't, it will just fall apart, and he'll sink into the ocean. And so it's not as simple as you know um, a book where someone says, I now create a boat, and you have a boat. Um, he can't allow that to just sit. He has to constantly do it over and over again. You know, you don't get, it's not an infinite fund. It's not an infinite resource like in a lot of other fantasy novels. It's, it's uh, I don't know if you would call it a renewable or an unrenewable resource, but it's definitely something that he can't rely on all the time. Yeah, there really is a sense that the magic is part of the world. It's, it's, it's not this separate thing. Um, you know, there's, in in a lot of especially in urban fantasy books but also in um in some of the older magic magical fantasy books that you see magic is this thing that that comes from outside gets pulled in um you never get that sense in the wizard of Earth. magic is 
is just an aspect of the world that he's in. And he can interact with it, but yeah, it is very bound to place. It is tied to the archipelago, um, um, possibly to the people there to a certain extent, because where he has trouble using it is also open ocean where there's no islands, no people around. There's no nobody to witness it and 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 to give it those hooks of meaning that language can get into. That is perfect. Yeah, it's a tricky balance for what for what Simon was saying, uh, or, or the way that you described it, Kyle. The 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 ship that's held together by spells and snot, essentially. Um, there's this peculiar. I mean, there's this limitedness to magic, and and often magic in fantasy novels becomes a form of wish fulfillment. And we could read that in Freudian sense as, as uh, repressed wish fulfillment. We could read it in other ways. I like to read ma- magic systems as often being. Um, a radical possibility because they they outline the contours of what's deemed insufficient or disappointing in our world. Magic steps in when the world isn't good enough, and that that gives us a, a potential to demand better. Um, if you want to see the radical potential in it, but here it's always so limited, and things blend a little in the magic system. So we like we talk about the Gebeth, the 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 shadow as being. Um, his his darker self but at the same time it's also death it, it's called up from the undead in effect um so there's this shadow self or this flip side of things but the problem isn't that there is this shadow or this dark side or that life has death the problem is that we have divided the two and that's where the violence lies uh if that's a way of putting it and magic doesn't ever allow us to get out of that easily in earthsea Earthsea demands that we really dwell in it and suffer with that um, limitedness, uh, that insufficiency be something we can't escape from. I, I think of all the stories in the tales of Earthsea or the other wind as both being um, fantasy stories that don't truck with the, I don't know, what to call it, the, the most optimistic version of magic uh, because <laughs> they're so, because they're so, pedestrian or because they're so um not even i don't know what you even call it like um worker friendly right i mean the guy in the other wind is just he fixes pots which you know i (laughs) i love that a because that that reminds me of a philip k dick the uh, galactic pot healer which is a whole other theme about like people doing um, you know, sort of low-level crafts that are not, you know, given a lot of respect. Uh, so she's always more clever than we are. Who? Yeah. Gwen? Yes. Well. Yeah. And yet, and and yet, she doesn't uh, dwell on it. It's not something that she really. Uh, she doesn't do it for the sake of it. There's there's no. something about it that is um, honest. I don't ever feel. Um, like Le Guin is showing off in any of the Earthsea books. I don't feel like anything, but I also don't feel like there's a message that she's trying to get through either. And especially in this first book, um, what I was going to say was I don't feel like in Wizard of Earthsea that she's ever trying to trick us or put over some sort of a, a big meaning. And she said this before, and people are like, oh, did you ever want to say something about feminism here? Did you ever want to say something about X, Y, and Z topic here? And every time someone asks her that question, she says, I just write what comes to me. 
these characters came to me. It's sort of a, and I don't know if that she's doing that as a way to not allow other people to put messages in her mouth or if she's, if she's being absolutely honest, I think she's kind of sly sometimes. I think she can, she's trying to find a way to um, allow people to have it their way without having to push back and be too didactic on her end too. Or actually, if that's um, a serious message, I think like Herbert Reed, when he says the politics of the unpolitical, uh, at times choosing to be unpolitical is itself a politics. Is the absence of a message here also part of the message? Because, I mean, it is a book overwhelmed with or overflowing with um, meaning. Uh, you know, Ged has to learn not to be um, egotistical uh, and arrogant. Ged has to learn to embrace the fact that he's mortal. Uh, we as readers have to embrace the fact that magic isn't going to give us everything we want, including immortality. Uh, there's a, you know, it's, it's pregnant with meaning, but at the same time, Le Guin doesn't write about feminism until she's in a space where she can embody it. It's not that she decides this is a message I need to put out because I need to convince people of this. It's more that I can write a book that contains complexity once I myself contain that complexity. To a certain extent, it's, the, it's Wu Wei popping up again, though, right? That that doing without doing. So, you know, like she's she's building up a life and and putting a lot of effort and attention to giving us this this very round view of all the all the different things that go into this life, and then allowing meaning to arise from that without deliberately pushing meaning into it. It's, it's like so she's not writing it as message fiction. But that doesn't mean there isn't meaning there. It's it's just it's it's what has been welcomed in. The way of water. Exactly. Yeah. She has a wonderful blog on the way of water. Um I think it's the shortly after September eleventh, or it might be at the beginning of the Iraq war, I can't remember which. Um, and it's a beautiful blog entry, but it, it dwells on on that element uh, of Taoist thought and the way of water and how to do without doing in this moment where she strongly, fiercely opposes something and has a, a message in a sense that she wants to communicate, but is going to focus, at least she describes it in that blog, on how to be that thing to, to do without doing, uh, rather than how to convince or demand of others uh, that they change to it. But also there is still some slyness in Loud's and and I think we get that in, in her. Like Lao Tzu says, you know, like for a good ruler, um, when they achieve something, the people should go, oh, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> but but this is still like putting putting that book into its context. It is advice for a king that's being written there. Yeah. And so like what Lao Tzu is saying is that the 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 good king, the, the sage-like king, gives people the sense, oh, we did it. <laughs> um <laughs> So, so there, there is also, you gotta, you gotta make sure like there is that, that sneaking in there of the possibility that there's, there's a little hint of Machiavellian louds. I can see that in Le Guin too. I mean, she's not, this book is not without meaning. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I don't know if anybody would ever, and if anybody said that, I'd be very, I'd question their reading of period. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, every, everything in Le Guin seems to be overdetermined um in in meaning but i think that's because her arrangement 
of characters and language again is so primed for that right yeah. it's it's the it's it's like what you're saying about the way doing by not doing she just sets it up and then you either you move left or you move right and then it comes at you she's so adept at structuring the book in such a way that it doesn't feel like dare i say work but yeah what i, I was going to say was not only you brought up machiavelli but i was thinking about ged as a character and it's it reminds me of Hamlet to some degree that Hamlet is a character I very much love, but also he's a shithead, you know, and it's the same Ged in a weird way is like wonderful, but also, you know, um, Nemerly, the archmage died to save him. Yeah. I mean, Ged's kind know, of arrogant. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff yeah. just sort of like people falling out of his way, dying, you know, like the, uh, I think of the, it's, it's alluded. It's a brother and sister who had been exiled on this yes. uh, unmapped uh, sandbar that he meets. They don't really have much language and he tries to save them, but they don't want to go with him. And the narrator in a very rare flash forward says that they die there. And that's pretty much it. And part of me was like, I wanted Ged to do more, although I understood why he didn't. So there's, there's that, but there's also, he is kind of like, he's a goofball there's moments where you're like did you how did you not see this or you know like why did you go in that direction or why did you do that or um it is a sort of pride issue again i just sitting here thinking like you know hamlet's a great character from from a particular angle but everyone around him dies <laughs> he's like a really yeah. great cause of murder in elsinore <laughs> and uh ged is just sort of sailing around through earth seas leaving a trail of sadness behind him he I, has I to think, come to grips with that. Go, yeah. go ahead, Simon. Yeah, I, I think especially with that episode on the on the island where, when he he's shipwrecked with that little couple, um, he he leaves them a well. He gives them fresh water. Yes. Um, I think to a certain extent, it's him finding that balance he didn't have, um, earlier in the story with the dragons and and the little boy, um, where he's beginning to understand how he can try to save lives and help people without pushing it too far and and yeah and so no they don't want to go with him he's he's not going to bundle them into the boat force them to go with him he'll just give them what he can so that they have a better chance where they are it it is a sense of dignity though too because Mm -hmm. the idea there is that your there's a part of you that wants him to save them because you feel like that's either what the narrative wants or what you think life should be but in reality what would happen to these people if he took them somewhere nothing they they can't live a life there maybe that's the ultimate tragedy of that little story within the bigger story and yeah giving them the well he gives them fresh water it's not brackish it will give them perhaps more peace it will give them more dignity i don't know i that's a word that I think is it's not really in the book so much and it only is just coming to me now. And I don't know really what I think about it so much, but it is something that keeps popping up over and over again. When I think back on the book and on his interactions, what he wants is like when he first arrives at Roke and he meets Jasper, who is this, um, I don't know what you call him sort of like the, the boy who shows him around, but he's also kind of Ged gets this feeling that he's looking down, he's condescending to him for a number of reasons. He, he's upper class and Ged is working yeah, class. Yeah. Exactly. And and yet 
it's not pushed too much in our face. We see that. And uh, he pushes Ged to eventually tear asunder the shadow, right? And loosen it upon the world uh, because he's pushing him, show us something, show us something, do something. And Ged says, oh, I'll show you something, right? And then how he pays for it in that moment. But all he wants is a sense of dignity. He wants someone to look at him and say, I can do this, right? He wants it from Ogion. He wants it from Jasper. He wants it from the, you know, the, the initial uh, captain of the boat that takes him down to Roke, uh, you know, he has, but the, the interesting part in all this though, is that a lot of the time what gets him out of these situations isn't magic. As you said before, it's him just being human. Yeah. He, he, at the crest of a wave, he sees the light on Roke. Then they start steering the ship toward where they need to go. Um, well, you, we were even talking about when he's in Pendor with the dragon, when the little, when the smaller drakes come at him, um, he doesn't really do all that much. To, except I've sort of seen him as a sort of like uh, martial arts master dodging to the left or to the right as they come at him. And he sort of maybe fends their energy off to one way or another, right? You know, he's not actually, uh, I don't think he uses magic to pull them out of the sky, does he? This yeah, he does. Attack yeah. He does use magic? He, he does. He, he binds their wings. He transforms into a dragon. Uh, at point into, into a, yeah. Them. yeah. Um, but uh but but i mean but he's making a mistake there right and and i think that's part of what we're seeing with the well where it's a much smaller moment and it's much more restrained in what he does and i think part of that is his him beginning to understand the boundaries between dignity and pride yes because <laughs> like he does want dignity when he's like jasper's a bully it's just yes. Annoying little guy who's who's a few years ahead, so he's got access that he lords over Ged. Um, it's Malfoy, <laughs> pretty uh, much. Well, well, except James, written by a competent author. <laughs> James, you broke you you uh, reached the the Harry Potter question. Uh, <laughs> well, the, uh, I mean, exactly but, what Simon was saying. There, yeah. There's pride and there's dignity, and um, with Ged, he he would not be an interesting character without the pride. This is why we don't kill the Gebeth. We don't kill the shadow. Right. Uh, he does need to have that confidence and that sense in himself. But at the same time, if it's in this, if it's in the driver's seat, then things are going to go poorly uh, for him and for others. And in a sense, it's right, right back to that opening little poem in the book where it's not life and death. They're in each other and trying to get rid of one. Like you want life forever. So you want to kill death. Well, guess what? You're going to destroy life. Uh, that that's not going to work. You want Ged to be um, humble, and you want him to kill the pride within himself. Well, guess what? You don't. He doesn't matter then. Uh, it's it's a book about accepting those things and that flux and change altogether. He he has to learn how to be all his seemings. So he 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 seems like a little shepherd boy. He seems like a prideful student. He seems like a, a, a fugitive. He seems. Like he, but he he seems like a hawk but he has to be all those things and and to learn how to be all those things all at once that's well put yeah he is that's the seeming and being again i wish there was a third yeah. way in that but there probably is it's the it's the it's the confusion and the conflict and the confluence of both of those things that where does seeming end and where does being start um, You're back to Hamlet. I know not seems. Yeah. 
but it's it's also the biggest misreading of Le Guin too. Uh, sorry if I'm jumping in, but no, um, she's she's read by Darko Suvin as, as uh, this misplaced spiritualism. Uh, Jameson uh, calls her anti-utopian. Uh, Delaney has many things to say about her, <laughs> and across the board, you know, when Jameson ever writes about Gwyn, he'll usually start off saying this is her Taoism, this is her spiritual Taoism, or he'll say this is her anarchism, then this is her spiritual Taoism, and then this is just magical fancery each time he revises it gets diminished um and i think it's a misinterpretation or a misreading like you know there's taoism in the book but it's also very political uh and it has other things in that because you can't enforce that binary is this progressive or reactionary well it's the division itself is part of the violence being enacted on on this situation already she doesn't have anything to do with that division, or, or if there is something to do with it. It's that the book is working against that division. I think there's a certain tendency, uh, also, for, for for people to mystify Taoism more than they should. Um, if you if you look at a lot of the contemporary thought that was going on in China at the same time as Taoism, it's all very pragmatic. Um, you've got legalism, which is probably one of the most pragmatic classical philosophies that was developed anywhere. Um, you've got Sunza writing basically materialism, um, and 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 Kongzi, for all that he was really concerned with with um, with the right ways of doing things, it was for quite grounded reasons. As far as an almost like, I mean, the the best person to put him in contact with as far as classical philosophy in the West would be Aristotle. And and that way that that virtue represents a way of modulating your relationship toward others, right? So I think a lot of people look at Taoism and and how it interplays with with religion in the Chinese context and go, oh well, that's 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 mysticism. But it's the and and, and this is why I kind of jokingly hinted at Machiavelli there. It's it's not. It's it's often quite pragmatic, and it's just trying to counsel something in a way that that does live in paradox and wants to to um to take a term from the Shambhala press edition of of the of, of Sunza to take it whole all and of where, it all at once and where's the where's the mysticism of religion in Earthsea I mean other than the in the next book in the tombs of Atuan where you have the mm-hmm. what is it they called the eaten gods yeah. Yes. And, now and, you have and that, something slightly religious there, but it's also, I think we're, we come to learn that it's bunk, that maybe the people who don't even believe in it, who are sort of pushing it. So then what does that really leave you then on a religious, metaphysical, spiritual level in Earthsea? Magic. But again, magic is more of this, um, it's more of a, I don't know, what would you call it? Um, not, it's not moralistic. It's uh it's a system to work with life. It's uh, yeah. it seems pragmatic it's, to me. It's it's meant to be used to do things. It's not there to gain <coughs> worshippers or followers. Mages are sent out almost like plumbers. You know, like we've got a mm-hmm. we've got this uh, catch-all fella who can who can be on the island and do things, and uh, and we love that. And when they lose them, like, well, now what are we going to do? Who's going to help us with our sailing? Who's gonna Who's going to charm and put the spells on our boat? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is why, I, yeah, that's, I, I think anybody who tries to put that on her is, is wrong. And I, I think the, there's, I don't know if you agree with this, but there seems to have been a big turn in the last, say, f- 
five to 10 years about gods being very important in fantasy and the gods being a lot like people, right? And the gods being trapped or chained or, you know, there's all kinds of different series that are come out where that's going on constantly. And you, you it's know, been there, there since there, the 80s. I, I, there, I'm sure it has. Who's, go ahead. There, there's someone who's working with that right now who's actually doing something interesting with it, though. So there, there's still some some fire there because you got somebody like Tamsin Muir. And um, some of what she does with Hair of the Ninth, where they're, um, and you can cut this because there will be minor spoilers for Hair of the Ninth here, where <laughs> there is a god figure who spends a lot of the book trying to present himself as being this relatable human sort of character, right up until the moment where it becomes clear that no, he is not. Sure. <laughs> and 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 that he's actually something much more mysterious and terrifying and not entirely knowable and that there's a reason why people should have a sense of religious ecstasy around this 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 be even if he wants to sometimes make the people that are to him think he's just that well i even i don't know if you read the hundred thousand kingdoms trilogy bank k jemison but there there's that's all about gods and people becoming gods and the gods interfering and it's so i mean and this is not unusual that's ancient greek mythology right uh but the in my head, what I, what I think is so, again, a radical part of that, and perhaps it's not so radical, but it seems to me when we start adding all these things up that Earthsea as an entire series, but just this book specifically, doesn't really have a lot of truck with that. You don't see anybody getting down to pray. You don't see anybody going to a church. You don't see anybody wearing any religious iconography. There are runes. There are spells and charms. And mages have a respect like you know they can generally ride on boats they can get free food you know they're treated pretty well but it's nothing so much as like you know um real religious awe or anything right it's more like there's a, there's and, a practical respect to that and the only thing that's waiting for you at the boundary between life and death it's not a god or a judge it's just your own death yeah I love that though, but that's why, and I like what she calls it the dry land, you know, yeah. that, that, that area. Yeah. I'm, I want to, um, oh, I see that we're getting close to time. I want to end on a, on a, on a, on a couple things here. One of which, or maybe we'll just end on this is I, I mentioned that, that low stone wall as being the, the core image, I think in a lot of Le Guin's work. Uh, even though I've not read all of it, that's what the podcast here is an excuse for me to just read through everything in a systematic way. But it begins the dispossessed. It, it's located centrally in the first book of Earthsea. Uh, why don't we speak a little bit to what you think that low wall represents in her work, maybe specifically just in this book, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go. Simon, you want to start? Well, it's a conceptual divider rather than an actual blockade. You can jump over a low stone wall, but it's there pretty clear, and it's it's got some significance to it. Like, you know that you're crossing a boundary, but it's still a boundary you can cross. So it's to know that the boundary is there. Yeah, it's it's yeah. It's, it's not really knowledge that there's a threat. Yeah, right. yeah there, it's, it's knowledge of a threshold more than an actual impediment. Right. I would put something slightly different onto it. I, I, I'd agree with that. But the wall, especially in the dispossessed and also here in Earthsea, uh, and they are so conveniently the same thing, um, 
the wall itself is the violence of division into a binary or, dare I say, a trinity of something that is essentially <laughs> unitary. And, and, you know, that may be a gesture, a religious gesture that's not my own, and it's probably uh, not entirely appropriate to, to Le Guin. But the desire to have her take a stance between two options, which can lead to misreadings of her work, is in a sense of violence onto the text. Mm-hmm. The wall and the dispossessed and the wall here, the wall dividing life and death, rather than seeing, uh, as that opening poem does for us, that there is life in death and death in life, uh, that there is light and dark. These are not separate things. Um, the wall is that imposed violence of dividing them that, that initiates the whole problem in the first place. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't have... Yeah, we wouldn't have book yeah. three. We wouldn't have the Gebeth. <laughs> we wouldn't have these things had we not had that that instantiatory uh, violence of of that small, easily jumped over or clambered over stone wall. Uh, it it divides into separateness things that are already unitary. I like that. I, I like both of those responses and the idea that um, that that's meant to be crossed sometimes too because. Geb can go over the wall from life to death and that you will go over that it's meant to be actually it's it's low because you're meant to go over it right it's not meant to be a wall yeah mm-hmm. it, it's 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 uh it's just letting you know that it's that it's there at some point and the same thing about and the dispossessed the wall is there just to let you know that this is not part of anares technically that this is this belongs to uh a different us yeah. and this is where it's sort of like uh the way we view um, you know, embassies or something like that. It's considered their soil, even though it's in your country. Yeah. Or this uh, is utopia and this is dystopia. Uh, that, that division, <laughs> that line between is what creates the problem. You, know, you got two things. You got to kill one and build the other. And, and you, anything, you, anything about this belongs to in the context of the dispossessed is going <laughs> to get complexified fast. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And, and maybe we should, we'll, we'll leave it here. But I just, I wanted to end on that because it's such a, it's, it's, uh, I remember it being one of the more terrifying scenes of the book for me and also just sort of a fascinating um, recurring image for her uh, that I'm constantly keeping my eyes open for when I read her work. So, But uh, it remains for me to thank Simon McNeil and James Gifford uh, for this very uh, wondrous and wandering conversation. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. It was great to talk to both of you about uh, A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. So thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>